Well, good morning to you. So glad you're here. Uh, we are uh, about three quarters of the way through uh, the book of Philippians. Uh, we're in chapter three. If you want to go to the book of Philippians in the New Testament and kind of get to chapter three, we're going to get there and talk about that here in just a moment. But our theme today is about where we find our righteousness. And we're going to unpack that word because that, for some of you, maybe you didn't grow up in church, righteousness is a, is a church word. And uh, it's like justification and sanctification and uh, glorification. All those are kind of church words, but they have biblical understanding and merit to them. And so we're talking about unspeakable joy. And I, I was, it was interesting to me because today it's, you know, finding your joy in the righteousness of Christ, not in what you can do, what kind of how can I earn this. We talk about this a lot. And it's something I'm learning through this and the book of Romans that we're going through on Wednesdays is how connected these two are. It's amazing as I've, I've really started to look at this. And so kind of the theme I want to just hit you with is this. It says, we are warned to stay clear of false teachers who teach what we do rather than the free gift of grace provided through Christ makes us believers. So if you got somebody saying, uh, I, was, I was having this conversation with somebody last Wednesday night, is they have a friend who believes that you can kind of earn your way into heaven by doing lots of things. And I have to tell you, as a Christian, that sounds kind of appealing, doesn't it? If I can do something in this, this salvation piece, it makes me feel better. It makes me feel like, okay, I've, I've done a, my part here. But I have to tell you that this whole thing about what, what Paul is talking about is that the, the joy that he has is because he has peace and what Jesus has done for him is enough. He doesn't have to dazzle him. He doesn't have to make sure he's done enough. And uh, we talked about this idea of biblical joy, and I want to keep re, kind of keep reminding you about this. It's an attitude of choosing to be joyful. It's about where we place our focus. It lives with gratitude for what's been done for us through Jesus on the cross. Now, let me go back to the one, that first one. Joy is a choice. Last Monday, I, I went to see if one of our church members was having hip surgery, and it was early. And that night, my little girl, uh, how many of you have ever, either your children or yourself have ever experienced growth pains when you're growing? It's real, isn't it? And so my little girl, Beth was sick, and my little girl um, got up twice during that night with crying with growth pains. Her legs were hurting, and, she, and so I got her back to sleep. She woke up an hour later, got her back to sleep, and then it was time for me to leave. So do the math. I slept about three hours. So my joy meter was fairly low. Are you feeling me? So my joy meter was fairly low, and I go to see uh, Gloria uh, Sanders was having hip surgery, and I, I said, I really want to be there for your surgery. Her surgery was at 730, and it was at the Andover Hospital at, off of 21st. So it's a bit of a drive from here. And so I, I, I'm sleep deprived. My joy meter's fairly low. Okay? And so I get there a little before 7, and they decided to take her back early. Now, I have to tell you, my joy tank got empty. Because not only did I not see her, I did not see her husband or anybody else. I didn't get to pray for anybody. But you know what I figured out is by the time I got back to the church, I was in a bad mood because joy is a choice. Joy is a choice. And I had no reason to be grumpy 
no reason to complain. It didn't turn out the way that I hoped my Monday would go, but isn't that kind of how it is? Your days don't always go exactly the way they should. Everything doesn't go to plan. We have a choice in how we respond to all that. And God was just like, God was telling me so profoundly Monday morning, getting ready for this whole Philippians series, joy is a choice. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of the, of if things don't go your way, it's choice. And God was just like all week long, he's like, yeah, it's easy to preach on it, Danny. It's another thing to live it. Like, curses. <laughs> he's right. And so we're going to talk today about this idea of righteousness, that your righteousness in Christ is, is, is so it's so enjoyable if you understand it's through Him and not in anything that you do. So let me talk a little bit about righteousness for just a second. God's righteousness is the definition and source of ours. That who God is, is our gold standard for how we should live our lives. However God was, is you, if you're going, well, what does righteousness look like? Don't look at anybody else. Look at God. Look at Jesus. Look at His life, okay? A judge, God, will pronounce us righteous based on what Christ has done in our lives or not done. This is a harsh reality that you're going to be deemed righteous because of Christ, either because He's in your life or because He is not. And that's a, that's a harsh and true reality. Our only righteous, only righteous people are going to be in heaven. None of us are righteous, not even, not even none. If you go back to Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Doesn't say some. Doesn't say only those who don't go to church. It says all have fallen short. That means that we don't all measure up, that we, we need a helper. We need some help here for us to be made right in the sight of God. And God says, I've got a plan. I can help you with that. It says we need a righteous source, and that is why the gospel is good news. Because the gospel is good news because it gives us the source of perfect righteousness, and that's in Christ. And that should give you a smile to your face because you don't have to do anything for it, all right? And so that's important. So we get into, we get into Scripture here, and before we do, I, I, I got to say this. Um, would you say that we live in a culture that we're just constantly measuring stuff? We do. We we live in a culture, whether you go to church or anywhere, we measure, we measure our success, we measure our parenting, we measure our marriages, we measure our bank accounts, we measure our status at school, we measure uh, how good our kid is in sports, we measure our sports teams, we measure our spiritual growth. Do you get the point? We measure. If I got a good tool and a really awesome tool and I invited Brad over to see it, and he goes, yeah, that's really good, but you ought to see the one I got. Have you ever done that? Have you ever, have you ever got something that you wanted to kind of impress everybody, and then went, oh, yeah, you got last year's model. Yeah, that's a good one. You ought to come see mine. I got the newest one. That, that, I have a love-hate relationship with golf, Corey, and I talk about this, because golf is one of those sports that about every six months, the newest, latest, greatest comes out. And it's always more than the last, latest, and greatest. Am I right, Justin? Yeah. It's amazing that this driver, I promise, will make you a better golfer. You know, I'm like, I, you said the same thing about the last one. But we're, we live in a world of comparison. Uh, we see it on social media. Uh, people are, man, man they're always on vacation. 
Man, look how much weight they've lost. Look how much weight they've gained. Man, they're really a lot older. I mean, we, we see and we're comparing constantly, and we live, in a com- we live in a comparison culture. And we may not say it outwardly, but we're thinking it. Man, she's put on a little bit of weight. Boy, that's too bad. Wow. I'm getting my hair cut a couple weeks ago. The lady goes, he goes, I think she was trying to be funny. She goes, man, you got some serious white walls. I'm like, I said, yeah, I'm doing the reverse highlight thing. And she she went, she didn't know what to say because she was, but I was like, do you just, did you think about that statement before you said it? You know, it's, it's just, you got some serious white walls. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm good. I'm 55. Do the math, okay? Come on, leave me alone. All right, so. So, every now and then I'll bring this out. And you should know, this sits in my office in a corner so I can see it. It's my, uh, my five-foot ruler. I've had it for, since I've been with you guys. Every now and then I have to break it out because we are constantly measuring. Constantly. You may not say it out loud, but you're measuring. We measure churches against other churches. We measure pastors against other pastors. We measure music. We measure our cars. We measure just about everything. And so when you think about today, when we start talking about this idea of, of measuring, because Paul's going to actually kind of bring it to light, that we're, we're in this measuring thing. Like, if I just can measure up, then God should let me in, that I've done enough things. And what Paul is going to say is all these things that you think matter, they don't. See, I've learned that comparison, comparison is a drug because it never satisfies. It's always another because isn't it true, guys, can't you find somebody else that's thinner or has a bigger bank account or has more hair or has less gray? Um, do the math. And there's always somebody that's got something a little bit better. And yet we're constantly comparison. And, and it's a, let me just tell you, comparison, I think, steals from our faith far more than we will ever, ever acknowledge. Oh my gosh, you know, I was just reading this morning. I'm reading a powerful book called Imperfect Pastor, and he talked about that the church he was in was uh, a church that was the, it was the up-and-coming church until they had a split, and then their church fell apart, and they were, and, and the, they were just a small remnant was left, and they were plowing ahead, and he talked about that we were, we were measuring ourselves against all the other churches out there and what he found, what he was doing wrong was he was saying, if we were more like that church, then we would be what God wants. And what he, what, he said, what he said profoundly to me was, is that God's called us to be this church, not that church. And when we, do th- when we try to be that church, we cease being the church God called us to be. Because God's called us to be this church for a reason, to look this way, to, to reach these people. And so he's being pretty clear about that. And so we get to this idea that, we're comparing. Um, and and when, we're, when we spend all of our time comparing, well, man, my faith is pretty good because based on so-and-so, you know. So we're only reading 11 verses, but there's a, there's a couple we're going to get to here pretty quick that kind of just give you the seriousness of that we live in a measuring world. You've got an insert that you'll be able to fill out here if, you, if that helps you. So let me read this. The first word is finally. 
And that means you got to go back to what we read last week. And so I want to read Philippians 2, 5 through 9. And this is what Paul said about Christ. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through his way, his way, his was the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself out, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God was highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so Paul, is, this finally piece is going to say, what Jesus did, that's what you should do. What Jesus did, that's what you should do. And, and here's why he's going to say that. So he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, why in the world would he say safe? Because... Because there were people out there saying, Jesus is great, but you know, if you do some of these other things, you're, you're safe. You're gonna, Jesus plus anything else is not the true gospel. Jesus plus anything else is not the true gospel. We, he said that in Galatians. Jesus is it. You don't have to do this and. Let me just tell you, God is not needing your extra credit to get you into heaven. It's Jesus that gets you into heaven. Okay? You don't have to have some extra credit that you do. He says, I'll do that. He says, so stay true, stay focused on the true gospel and watch for those people who try to say Jesus plus something else, okay? Because uh, I love this, watch for legalism. Legalism is self-atonement. Legalism is self-atonement. What can I do to get myself into heaven? And, and, here, and see how this is tied? Because then I compare myself to somebody else and based on them, I'm doing okay. Maybe or maybe not. Or I've got some work to do. So verse 2 says this. And, and, and I'm going to read verses 2 through 6, but then we're going to get down to 5 and 6, and you're going to see some things there that I want to hit real quick in relation to this. He says, look out for the dogs. Now, the dogs are not literal dogs. He's talking about the Jews. The Jews refer to the Gentiles as dogs. Actually call them dogs. Hey, let's serve together to give Jesus, you dogs. You know, it was just like, look out for the dogs. And he's, he's talking about his own people here. He says, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Which we, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says, some of you think, you think you have a resume? He says, let me show you my resume. Because people were saying, look at what I'm doing for you, God. Look at, look at how I am. Look at, how, look at my life, God. And, and, and Paul's like, uh, let me give you my resume, because you're doing this comparison thing, and he's talking about this, that, that you had a group of people that the, the Jewish culture was saying to the Gentiles and anybody else, if you've not been circumcised, you can't know Jesus. You cannot have a relationship with Jesus. We see it in Romans profoundly. He's like, Jesus was saying, it's, it's circumcision 
doesn't get you a relationship with Christ. It's a part of, it's a part of human, for boys, it was a thing. But it's not, it's not this all-encompassing salvational moment. He goes, I had it done. I know. I was still not living for God. And so you see that he gives you kind of this nugget of stuff. Verses 5 and 6. You see, he says, circumcised? I, I want to walk through these. Let me just help you out. Circumcision can't save you. The ethnicity, the, maybe the, the group that you grew up in, the, the, the background that you had, can't save you. Because you, you look at that and look at what it says in verse 5. Circumcision on the eighth day. People of Israel, heritage can't save you. Okay? Let me help you out. Tradition can't save you. Rule keeping can't save you. Being zealous for Jesus can't save you. Because how do we know this? The religious leaders of Jesus' day would have been incredibly zealot. They were crazy over the top with, with the, the, the following the law and being as much like Jesus as humanly possible. All of those things, rituals, Think about, let's put it modern day. Ritual, I, I, I'm going to go to church every day. I'm going to carry my Bible. I'm never going to miss. I'm always going to be there. I'm going to put money in the plate. I'm going I'm to do all the Jesus things I can. Do those save you? They don't. I'm going to keep God's Word. I'm going to follow all the laws, and I'm going to memorize them, and I'm going to live by them. Can that save you? can't. I'm going to do the traditions of the church. I'm going I'm to partake of the Lord's Supper. I might even get baptized. But if I don't know Jesus Christ personally, is that going to save me? It's not. If I am super zealous for Jesus, I'm telling you, turn or burn, Jesus saves. I'm, I'm, I'm out there telling everybody, but if, if I don't have the relationship it can't save you either. It can't save you either. And so Paul is saying all of this spiritual activity, because that list he just gave, the people in his culture would have been saying, look at how spiritual we are. We've been circumcised. We're born in the right ethnicity. We have the right heritage. We're rule keepers. We're excited about telling people about Jesus. But Paul is saying if you don't know Jesus personally, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And Paul, the reason Paul was being so adamant about this is because he recognized that people were giving up the actual relationship with Christ so that they could be their own little Christ. Because see, if I, if I, if I can be my own little Christ, then I can, I can kind of just dictate this whole thing. That it's dependent on me, not on Christ, not what he did on the cross. And Paul is like, um, no, I did. Paul is saying, look, I did all of those things and more, and I was a persecutor of the church. I did everything that, I, that you guys just described. So my resume is way better than yours, and I still needed Jesus. I still needed Jesus. Timothy Keller, if you want to read a great book kind of along this idea, is read Prodigal God by uh, Timothy Keller. One of the, if, if I were stuck on an island and I had like five books I got to pick, that would be one of them. It's about 120 pages, but it is a powerful book. A powerful book on the power of God in two lives going in two different directions 
powerful stuff. Timothy Keller said this, and this came out of that book. He said, religious people commonly live very moral lives, but their goal is to leverage over God, to control Him, to put Him in a position where they think He owes us. And how do I know this? Is the first time something hard happens in your life, you go, God, why is this happening to me? This is so unfair. I give to the church. I serve the church. I teach a life group. I give money. I give my time. I'm there every Sunday, God, and this is what I get? Could Paul have said that? Certainly, but he didn't. He stood in chains and wrote to the people and says, don't be like this. Don't be like this. Remember, when he wrote this letter, he was in chains, guard on the left, guard on the right, and this was his life. And he said, regardless of my circumstances, joy is a choice. Always has been, always will be. And the only way we find that joy is that the source of it is Christ in our lives. And so if you're taking notes, this first little bit is this. It's not Jesus plus your good works. It is Christ and Christ alone. And I know in a group this size, you bristle at that because you're like, I hear you, Danny, and I agree with that, but doesn't he need my help in some capacity? No, let me just help you. You just need to get out of the way. You need to... The reason that Paul could do what he did with the chains being in a season of life that he was in is because he knew that Christ had actually done something extraordinary in his life. And he knew that he was going to... that this comparison thing was going to start to diminish in his life instead of increase. See, if Christ, if you're not certain that Christ is the Savior of your life and the Savior of your soul, you're going to always be struggling with comparing, comparing yourself to other people instead of resting in what Christ has done for you. So why in the world, we're going to read this great passage, one of the, if, you're like, if you like memorized verses, this, this one in Philippians 3.8 is one of those. It's like, why would Paul give up so much? Why would Paul surrender himself the way that he did? Here's why. Because of what Christ had done in his life. This goes all the way back to Romans. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I know the power of it. He knew the power of it not because of other people, because of himself. He knew the power of it because of what God had done in his life so profoundly that he went, man, if God can save me, he can save anybody. And so I want you to think about this question as we go. What do you treasure? What do you hold valuable? What do you hold that, that you're like, man, I'd hate to lose that. That's, that's something I've, I've had in my family. It's a, something was given to me, whatever it was. I want you to think about what do you treasure? And think about that question in light of what we're about to read. So he, he tells them, he says, you can be zealous for all these things. You can, you, can, you can try to think your spiritual heritage is going to be enough. But he says in verse 7, he says this. He says, but whatever, whatever gain I had, I counted a loss for the sake of Christ. He, said, all the, he says, my fancy resume that I just spouted off to you, it was not for the good. It was, it was hindering my ability to actually have the right kind of relationship with Christ. He says, everything I've occurred in life, if I don't have Christ, it's nothing. And I think for us in this world, if we were to step back just a second and say, 
am I spending too much of my time comparing all of my accumulation of stuff? What if I spent the actual, that same time saying, God, is my relationship with you where it should be and could be? And I think a lot of us Christians are in this trap of comparison. I, I really do. I think a lot of Christians are spending a lot of hours wading through, you know, gosh, you know, I'm not as good a parent as I thought I was, or I'm a much better parent than they are, uh, their vocation or whatever, and we're doing this, and it's this constant wave. And Paul is saying, I, anything that I've occurred, everything that I've got, it's a loss if I don't have Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 9, or 8, excuse me. He says, indeed, I count. Now, count, for those of you who are mathematical, it, it, this, is a, this is an actual term. He's like, he counted. He's like, man, I, I've got all this stuff, and, but if I don't have Jesus, Jesus outweighs all the stuff that I've occurred in my life. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. Now, that's really important. The my, not about, but about Lord, because that means he had a relationship with him. He says, my Lord. He doesn't say about Christ. He doesn't say the knowledge about Christ. He says, my Lord. That means he had a personal relationship with him. He says, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and have count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He goes, Paul's saying, I don't care that I'm in chains. If it's going to bring glory and honor to God based on what he has done for me, I'll do it. And if you read some of Paul's stuff, Paul went through a lot. He was, he was beaten. He was arrested. He was shipwrecked. He had an affliction. He asked God three times to take it away. Have you ever asked God three times to take it away and it still stays? See, the thing about those kinds of things is you find out where your relationship with Christ is is if you're leveraging it over Him. God, it is so unfair. I said this before. It is so unfair that this is where I am. Look at what I've done for you. Look at how I've lived my life for you. And when we start to leverage, we're saying, God, I, I, I'm measuring, and you're not doing enough for me. Seems a little unfair. Seems like you should be doing more for me. Look at what I've done for you. And he says, all this I count as loss if I don't have Jesus, and if I can't make Jesus known. And he's the first night, he says, but being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. He says, I don't have this righteousness on my own. I didn't get it on my own. I got it through Christ. He says, but found in him and not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, and he is referring back to his old ways, that I thought the law would be my Savior. And as we talked about on Romans on Sunday, Wednesday nights, the law was designed to point you to the fact that you needed a Savior because you could never, ever follow the laws perfectly, and you wouldn't want to. Uh, you, you couldn't follow them, and you, but the idea was they were, to be, they were to be guardrails to point you to a Savior, not to replace Him. And he says, the law and all that stuff, that stuff was, it was, it was good, but I let it become God. And it should have pointed me to the fact I needed a Savior, but I let it replace Him. So being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but 
that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God depends on faith. This is really important. Depends. Doesn't depend on me. Doesn't depend on my church. Doesn't depend on my pastor. My personal relationship with Christ depends on the fact that I trust that what he did on the cross was enough. And you rest in that. Let me just tell you, as soon as you can rest that what Jesus did for you on the cross is enough, this little thing goes away. Because you spend less time comparing your spiritual life, your married life, your parenting life, your, your bank account. You just spend time comparing less. I'm not saying it goes away because it's a tension for us human beings, but you do a whole lot less when you're resting in what Christ did for you on the cross. But until you do that, this thing will be front and center in your life. And you'll have this little quiet anxiety, am I doing enough for God? Am I praying enough? Am I reading enough of God's Word? Let's do a little truth-telling here for a second. How many of you sometimes, not always, but sometimes you feel like, man, am I praying enough? How many would raise your hands? How many of you would say, gosh, am I reading enough of God's Word? How many of you would say, am I thinking good things? How many of you would say, my heart sometimes isn't very loving? How many of you would say you give somebody a nasty look when they cut you off? Here's the reality. See, we, we want to live. I read this in this book I read this past week, and, and the, the chapter I read was very convicting to me personally. Because would you agree that we live in an impatient culture? We live in a very impatient culture. We're impatient about the people on our left and our right. We're impatient about the church. You're impatient about me. You're impatient at the light. You're impatient at the checkout. We're impatient with our children, with our grandchildren. We've even tried to help you with TVs because now you can DVR it and get through the commercials. Now, am I right? How many of you DVR so you can just get through the commercials? Let's own it. Okay, see, I'm, we're, Beth and I, man, there's a couple of shows we love to watch. Man, it is so nice to go, DVR is my friend. Ah, next. But we live in an impatient culture. And here we are. God is saying, I want to work in your life. I want you to stop comparing. I want you to stop looking around. And then we get impatient with ourselves. How many of you have been impatient with yourself this week? Oh, man, God, I'm, just, I'm not thinking about the things you want me to think about. I'm like, oh, man. And it was funny because God was trying to teach me. Let me back up. He was trying to remind me again that the choice of joy is daily little things. Not big moments. Certainly they can happen, but it's daily little moments. Daily little moments. I was going to see one of our church members in the hospital yesterday morning, and it was a Saturday morning, and um, I went in to tell my girl, I was, hey, I'm going to run up and see this guy who's in the hospital. And um, she goes, hey, Dad, come here. Let me give you something before you go. And I was like, I'm not taking an LOL or a shotgun with me, it's, which are little toy dolls things. You know, if you're a parent, those of you who have girls, you know what I'm saying. And so I'm thinking that's what she's going to give me, or she's going to give me a stuffed animal to take to whomever. And so I'm like, whatever she gives me, I will take. Well, she comes over, and she's kind of hiding it. And she hands it over, and she puts it in my hand. And it's about the size of my thumb. And it's a racer, but it's in the shape of a heart 
with a smiley face on it. She goes, here, take this with you, Dad. You might need it. And what occurred to me was is that joy is found in the littlest things of our days. Let me just help you out. Joy can be found even in the worst days and the hardest days because it's a choice. You can choose to be joyful. Paul was choosing to be joyful regardless of a circumstance. He's like, every one of us are going, wow, Paul, how are you this happy when you're chained up to two guys? Because he stopped comparing. He started looking out and he said, because God, God was incredibly patient with me. Let me just tell you, let me help you out here. The more patient you are, your joy meter will go up. Okay? The more patient you are, your joy meter will go up. Because you know that if God is, is being patient with you, then you need to be patient with everybody else. Everybody is on a path. Everybody's path is a little bit this. And so we see this, and he's saying, come on, look at your life, be patient. Patience comes when our joy goes up. He goes, and I can't all this. Everything I've experienced, Paul is saying, everything I've, I've, I've my, all of my accolades were for nothing if I don't have Jesus. Verse 10. Look at what he says. Let me, let me back up and read 9 again right into verse 10. He says, And being found in him and not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And I put in parentheses, trusting in God for complete salvation. See, Paul was saying, whatever it takes, whatever I need to do to make sure that at the end of my life, that my life is, is, is I finished what God's called me to do. I don't care, whatever I have to do, even if I'm in chains, even if this is unfair, and everybody else goes, man, you've not done anything wrong, and you're, this is it, and you're being this joyful. Joy has so many things connected to it, but the one thing that it has is it is a choice. It is a choice. And so, even if you've not prayed, even if you've not read enough in your estimation, uh, let me help you out. Reading a verse a day, and if it, if it profoundly affects you, is enough. If you need to read more, read more, but reading more doesn't make you get extra credit with God. Because here's what I know. Sometimes the more you read, the less you remember. Am I right? Have you ever read God's Word, and then if you would have taken a test two minutes later, you'd have no idea what you just read because your mind was everywhere else but not on the Word? How many of you have ever had that? Come on, own it. I was there. I've been there. Thinking about my day, thinking about this. Oh, gosh, I was right in the middle of reading God's Word. Now, what was I reading? I don't remember. Find joy in the successes of your daily life. Find joy in all the things that God has placed in your path. Don't go, really, God? Really, God? Man, God, I've been busy all week. God's like, yeah, I know. Be joy. It's a choice. It's a choice. So how do we get to everything that Paul just said? How do we get there? How do we go, man, how do we get rid of all this? How do we stop comparing? How do we take steps to, to have this joy 
that overflows into everybody else. A couple things. Sanctification. Sanctification is what is this help. Here's a life, lifelong, lifelong journey to becoming Christ-like. Okay? So let me help you out. That takes patience. That takes a lot of patience. Because your spouse, your children, your pastor, your church friends, your co-workers, anybody who's a follower of Christ, they're on a journey. Be patient with them. And here's a, here's a, let me give you a little nugget. Tell them to be patient with you too because you're on a journey. Sanctification, knowing Christ. You have to know Him personally. Go back to verse 8. Look at what He said. He said, I count everything in loss to become, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. He says, you have to have a personal relationship. If you want the sanctification process to begin to becoming Christ-like, it starts with a relationship. No other way. Can't get there. Justification is a gift from God. See, justification is God looking at you and declaring you righteous through Christ, not of yourself. See, when we think that we can do this, we're back to comparing. We're back to saying, look what I've done, God. See, justification and sanctification are tied together. You can't get sanctification first. Justification gives you the ability to see God work in your life. Sanctification is also this, knowing Christ more and becoming more like Him. Knowing Christ more. Let me help you out here. It's not about, it's more. A lot of people know about Christ. There are people who do not have a relationship with God but know more Bible than I do. The religious leaders of Jesus' day knew far more Bible than anybody else, but they, many of them did not know Christ personally. There's a big difference between knowing Christ personally and knowing about Him. So becoming like Him means that it takes, it takes a dance. It is a journey. Some of you have been on a journey for a long time, and I have too. And I can tell you that, that my Christian faith has ebbs and flows. What I like to tell you, it goes like this through the ceiling. I would love to tell you that, but I would not be realistic. There are, there are seasons where you just, you have some bumps in the road, am I right? You have moments where you, you have to take a pause. I, I liken my Christian faith to uh, climbing Mount Everest. Because I know that if you are climbing Mount Everest, um, they tell you that it takes a month just to climb it because you have to acclimate as you go up. You can't just start at the bottom and go, let's go. It's not how it works. They tell you that when you climb Mount Everest, you go to what they call base camp and you acclimate there because there's less air. And then they take you to the next base camp because you have to acclimate because there's less air there. They take you to the next one because there's less air there and there's a little bit of wind. A lot of wind. They, and they take you all, and, they, and then they have what they call the ascent. And you, you have a window to do that. And I think about our spiritual life that sometimes we'd all like to think it just soars through the ceiling and we just have this glorious moment. But I think it's, um, um, I used to watch, I used to do a, follow a cartoon called Family Circus. Are you familiar with that? And one of my favorite ones was when mom tells the son, says, I want you to come straight home. Are, have you, are you familiar with that one? Because, yeah, exactly, Mike. He gets home, 
But if you look at the picture, it is, he has made a lot of other stops along the way. He gets home, but it's, it, it, it's a really funny thing. And I think for us, when we're talking about knowing Christ, there are lots of little sidesteps, and there's lots of, and God doesn't waste any of that in bringing us into a deeper, more meaningful relationship with Him. Last thing I'll say is justification is God's work, and this is really important. Justification is God's work secured by Christ's death and appropriated by faith. That means it works if you trust it. It works if you trust it. That if you think that what Christ did is enough, then the comparison thing just starts to diminish. And you don't feel guilty and you don't wonder. Let me just tell you, the longer I'm a Christian, the longer I understand my faith, the less I wonder. Let me just tell you, folks, I don't, I don't wake up at night going, man, I wasn't... When I left the hospital on Sunday, on Monday morning, I was, I was really poopy. I was, a, I was a two-year-old in a 55-year-old body, pitching a fit. And there wasn't one moment in that drive back from there to the office that I thought, Did I, you know, am I still a Christian? Do I, do I still know Jesus? Yeah, I still know Jesus. I was just being whiny and complaining and being silly. And we all have those moments. And when we understand that that has done enough, then we get out of the way and we simply enjoy Matt Chandler said this, and I'll close. He said, we can't stop trusting Jesus at, conversation, at conversion. We must keep trusting Him, walking by faith, feeling the weight of the cross each day, knowing that God is at work even working, God is at work in and through us, and believing that our suffering will be worth it. And we don't like the suffering part at all. Let me just help you out. We all, we all want to think that our, 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 our whole life is going to be kumbaya. And we are not promised that. And I'll just, I hate to tell you this, but it's true. If Jesus experienced it, and if you want to have a relationship with him, then there are going to be moments of suffering. That's just part of it. That's part of what we signed up for. And I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did. Because any suffering that I have, that I don't have Jesus, is worse. I did a funeral for a family um, Wednesday that many of them did not know Jesus. And one of the important things that I, our church did, we represented Christ. I was really proud of our church. We represented Christ well to this family because they needed to know hope. And what does it look like? Because if you don't know what hope looks like when you're facing suffering and pain, and you don't know where to go to for the source of getting you through it, you may not get around it, but you can get through it with Christ. It's, man, that's important. And Paul is saying, guys, look at me. Not in an arrogant way. He's saying, look, my source to be joyful, being bound in change is Christ. And I'm not comparing myself to anybody else. I had that gold resume, and it didn't mean anything. So if you don't know Christ... If you don't know what Christ has done for you, there's no way that you're, you're going you're gonna to be trapped in the comparison game. You're going to be trapped in saying, Am I, have I done enough? Have I got enough church in me? Do I know enough Bible? Do I know what? No. Once you know what he did for you is on the cross, you'll find peace. And I, we got four pastors. We would love to talk to you about how to take that step. Maybe for some of you in this room, you have been trapped by comparison. It's a drug. You're in middle school. You're in high school. You're in college. You're married. You're, you're a grandparent. Comparison has hijacked you. 
Maybe today you just need to get before God and say, God, I forgive me for spending far too much time comparing my life instead of accepting what's been done. Let's pray. Father, I ask for forgiveness in my life where I have allowed joy to be a feeling and not a choice. And I could explain it away, I could excuse it away, but the reality was it was a choice. And I could have seen it as an opportunity. I pray for us in this room, God, that we spend far too often our days comparing our marriages, parenting, spiritual life, bank accounts, jobs, houses, cars, tools, whatever, instead of resting in the joy that what you did for us was enough. God, I pray for some in this room that they may not know you, they may not know that this God who loves them so much that he would send his son. And I pray that they would know that peace, but that peace comes through a relationship with you. And if they need to take that step of a relationship with you, that they would have the courage to, to seek out myself or Brad or Keith or Corey that we could help them take that step. There may be some in this room that most of their Christian life or too much of their Christian life has been spent comparing. And I pray that they would find freedom this morning. Father, for the next few moments, I pray that we would respond as you lead. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'll be up here. Uh